Now, Lord God, give us ears to hear your voice this morning as you speak. Help us to understand what you want us to understand. Help us to be changed how you want us to change. Lord, may your words shape us this morning for your glory, we pray. Amen. There's some wind in here. I'm not really sure what's going on with that. My apologies if it's distracting you. Uh, but friends, I want you to imagine this morning, as you got dressed for church, as you looked in the mirror, you noticed a small dark spot on the back of your shoulder. Would you do something about it? Well, imagine a few weeks later, you're at the GP, and so you decide to ask your doctor to have a quick look at that dark spot on your shoulder. And as you pull your shirt down, she takes one look and grimaces. Would you do something about it? Well, imagine the doctor took a biopsy, and when the results came back, she informed you that that dark spot on your shoulder was, in fact, a melanoma. Would you do something about it? Imagine six months down the track, as you're getting screened for cancer, you discover that before that melanoma was removed, it spread to your lymph nodes. Would you do something about it? Now, friends, I know that for some of you, this isn't the stuff of your imagination. This has been real experience. And so I hope you don't think that I'm making light of this situation because, in fact, I'm doing just the opposite. Because maybe at first sight of a mole on your shoulder, that doesn't send you to panic stations, but when faced with the danger of cancer, of course, of course, you do something about it. Of course you go to the doctor. Of course you get it removed. So the point here is that you don't take chances with life-threatening danger. Well, friends, in the passage that Rob just read for us from Matthew 5, Jesus tells us about two conditions so ghastly that they not only threaten our lives, they also threaten to destroy the lives of those with whom we come into contact. And yet most people in our world, and many Christians included, act as if these two conditions are harmless. Anger and lust, they lurk within our churches. They lurk in our neighbourhoods, in our own homes. And Jesus tells us this morning that both are so horrible that they put us in danger of hell precisely because they seek to destroy, degrade and dishonour the dignity of human life created in the image of God. And because you don't take chances with life-threatening danger, this morning we're going to do something about it. We're going to see the doctor. We're going to see the Lord Jesus who came to cure us of these ghastly conditions. And we're going to learn how we can get anger and lust removed from our lives. So friends, that's where we're heading this morning. You can follow along with an outline if you grab one on the way in. But if you've just joined us, 
For the past few weeks, uh, we've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus shows us what our lives will look like if he is our king. And the thing that stood out to us so far is that in Jesus' kingdom, righteousness matters. In Jesus' kingdom, righteousness matters. Now, remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Righteousness has two aspects to it, doesn't it? Uh, Righteousness means being right with God, not having anything which might damage our relationship with God. And righteousness also means living rightly, doing the right thing with our thoughts and our words and our actions. And both of these things are important to Jesus. In fact, Jesus said back in verse 6 that we are blessed. We are approved by God when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. In verse 10 of chapter 5, he said we are blessed when we crave righteousness so much that we're willing even to be persecuted for it. And in verse 20, where we left off last week, Jesus tells us that righteousness is the entry requirement to his kingdom. He says that unless we have righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, the kind of the super righteous people of the day, then we will certainly not enter his kingdom. I'm just going to try this. out of options there. I'm sorry. That's really frustrating. All right. In Jesus' kingdom, righteousness matters. And so for the remainder of chapter five, Jesus goes on to give us six examples of what it looks like for us to be more righteous than the Pharisees. And his standard is pretty high. Have a look. Open up your Bibles. Jesus begins in verse 21. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, we're only considering the first two of the six examples that Jesus gives, but all of them follow that same formula. You have heard, but I tell you. And here in verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. Now, there's nothing wrong with what the people have heard. This is one of the Ten Commandments that God gave to his people through Moses, wasn't it? You can find it in Exodus 20. There's no problem with what they had heard. God had told them, you shall not murder. But now Jesus, the one who came not to abolish that law, but to fulfill it, he shows us the fulfillment of that commandment. He says, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. By his own authority, Jesus declares that true righteousness is not just a matter of stopping yourself from killing. True righteousness transforms our hearts 
and our minds as well. True righteousness means not being angry or saying hateful or hurtful words to other people. Now, the word uh, raka, it's an Aramaic word which simply means empty. Uh, This is kind of the ancient equivalent of calling someone a buffet. I don't know, you can pick your word. An idiot, an imbecile. You have an empty head. Now, you might notice that Jesus only mentions anger directed towards a brother or sister, uh, referring to other Christians. I don't think that means it's okay for us to say hurtful and hateful things about non-Christians. Jesus' point is that human life, and particularly the life of his people, are created in the image of God. People are created by God. They're dearly loved by him. And because all people are loved and cared for by God, it's not our place to murder any more with our minds or our mouths than it is with our fists. In God's eyes, anger is murder and deserves the same judgment. We'll come back to that in a moment. But skipping ahead to verse 27 now, we see Jesus repeat the same formula, this time calling to mind the seventh commandment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, this commandment has been pretty routinely understood to mean don't have sex with someone that you're not married to. But again, as the fulfiller of this law, Jesus shows us that true righteousness... Sorry, Jesus shows us the true righteousness that the command was pointing towards. True righteousness begins not with our actions, but with our thoughts and with our desires. Verse 28, But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now again, we mustn't push the details too far. Uh, Clearly when Jesus forbids men from lusting after other women, he also forbids women from lusting after other men, and men and women lusting after people of the same sex. Because God has given us sex as a wonderful gift to be enjoyed within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And so any sex outside of, the, outside of that context, whether it's physical or mental, is sinful. Well, why is lust a problem? Well, Jesus tells us that you know, mental undressing, fantasizing, lustful looks, they're all adulterous because they show that we are ungrateful for what God has given us, whether we're single or married, and they treat the objects of our lust as just that. Objects. Objects for our own gratification rather than people to be respected and honoured. And so Jesus demands absolute sexual purity in thought just as in action. Now, thinking about these two conditions, if you will, this morning, it's pretty safe to say that in our society, neither of them rank fairly highly on people's moral radar. 
These are not things that people are worried about. You see, everyone has a problem with murder and rape, but nobody makes the connection between these two evils and the thoughts and the desires that produce them. Which means within our community today, uh, it's wrong to murder, but perfectly acceptable to speak hateful words against people who vote differently to us. It's wrong to engage in sex without consent, but perfectly fine to engage in sex without commitment, or to treat women as sexual objects privately. See, our world doesn't see how dangerous these things are. But Jesus couldn't be clearer, could he? If you want to live in my kingdom where righteousness matters, you need to be righteous on the inside. To be in Jesus' kingdom, we need to be good even in our thoughts. We need to be righteous, not just with our hands, but also with our hearts and in our minds. Which includes exactly zero people in this room, doesn't it? The question we have to ask when we read this passage is, why does Jesus bother saying all of this if there's no way that we can do it? Why doesn't Jesus just come out and say, no one's good enough for my kingdom, I'll live by myself. Give up, don't bother trying, it's impossible. Why why doesn't he say that? Well, friends, there's two reasons Jesus doesn't say that. First, he wants us to find his righteousness. Discovering that we're not good enough for Jesus' kingdom is exactly how we should respond to this passage. When Jesus says that only those whose righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, only those people can enter his kingdom, he wants us to admit defeat. Because the one thing worse for us, the one thing worse than not being good enough for Jesus' kingdom is thinking that you are. And so Jesus wants us to see this morning that we've got no hope of meeting his standard. He wants us to give up on self-righteousness. And he wants for us to come to him for righteousness. Because Jesus is the one who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, take off the burden of trying to be good enough. Be free from the despair of constant failure. Trust me and I will bring you into my kingdom. And so friends, this morning Jesus wants you to see that you're guilty of murder. He he wants you to see how disgusting it is when you harbour hateful thoughts against other people that he created. He wants you to know that hurling insults at other humans infuriates their heavenly father. And whether that be a relative, a neighbour, a telemarketer, 
or a stranger who picks a fight with you online. Our anger at his children grieves him. Just like a parent grieves to hear that their child is being bullied at school. Our anger grieves God because our anger is murderous in intent. Friends, this morning Jesus wants you to see that you're guilty of stealing what doesn't belong to you and depriving another human of their dignity when you view them as an object for your own sexual gratification. He wants you to know how depraved your mind is that you could ever think of another human as something to be possessed, something to be used and then discarded. Friends, Jesus wants us to feel the weight of our sin this morning. He wants us to know that we're not good enough. He wants our sin exposed. He wants us to know that we're guilty. But he also wants us to know that he loves us too much for us to stay that way. He wants you to know that he was willing to die to take the punishment for your murderous thoughts and your adulterous desires. He wants you to know that if you trust in his death in your place, he will give you righteousness so that you can be right with God forever. He paid the price of admission into his kingdom for us with his own blood. And so, friends, if you're here this morning and you haven't accepted Jesus' offer of life, of forgiveness, do that today. Admit your guilt, but find his righteousness. Because the first thing Jesus wants for all of us this morning is to find his righteousness. The second thing that Jesus wants for all of us this morning is to grow our righteousness. Because Jesus died so that we could be counted right with God, but now he gives us his spirit to help us actually become righteous. And I think this is a danger that Christians, that we can fall into. Uh, Sometimes Christians make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' gift of righteousness now lowers the bar. So that being holy, being righteous is just something that doesn't really concern us. We say, oh, Jesus has made us righteous. The bar's down here now. What this passage makes really clear to us is that Jesus doesn't lower the bar of righteousness. For people who are saved by grace, Jesus raises the bar. Jesus takes the Old Testament law about murder and he intensifies it to say that even anger is murder. Jesus raises the bar right up for maximum righteousness and then he lifts us over that bar and welcomes us into his kingdom. But that continues to be our standard now. This is the standard of righteousness that we are to aim for. Which means today, we need to take sin really seriously. Which is why in verses 23 to 26, which we skipped over just before, Jesus tells us that anger is such a dangerous threat to righteousness that we need to deal with it quickly. 
Which also means if you've done something to make someone else angry with you, it's up to you to set things straight as quickly as possible. Uh, Jesus gives us two examples from his context. Uh, The first of someone about to make a sacrifice in the temple. Uh, The second of someone on their way to court. Uh, But to help them, you know, help us understand, to put it into more familiar terms for us, Jesus says that if you're in church and you realize that you have wronged someone else, if you realize that your sin has caused someone else to be angry with you, deal with it right away. (laughs) Jesus says, uh, effectively, don't wait till after morning tea. Don't even wait for me to finish talking in this sermon. Go now. Go now. Deal with that now before it's too late. The second example, Jesus says that if you've done the wrong thing and you're being charged or you're being sued, if you're about to be dragged before the courts, Jesus says, don't let that drag out. Admit your guilt early. Make it right now. Don't withhold that justice from the person that you have wronged. And so, friends... The implication here for us is that if you have anger in your heart, if you're angry with someone else, don't ignore that. Don't act as if that is a harmless thing. Deal with that today. And likewise, if you've caused someone else to be angry with you, if you've wronged them and they are angry with you, don't ignore that. Deal with that today. In a world that's fueled by outrage and contempt for people who disagree with us, anger may seem like a small thing. But see what anger is to Jesus. To Jesus, anger is murder. And so we need to treat it seriously. Anger kills. Deal with it. Well, we see how seriously Jesus wants us to take sin when we move down to verses 29 and 30, where after exposing adulterous desires, Jesus warns us to value righteousness even more than our own bodies. If your right eye causes you to stumble, says Jesus, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now let's not miss the point here because there have been people throughout church history whose eyes have caused them to sin and so they've plucked them out. And there have been people who have found other parts of their bodies more difficult to tame and so have castrated themselves. If you want to start removing things that cause you to sin, it won't be long before there's nothing left to remove and you'll still sin. Jesus' point here is that sexual sin in particular, but all sin, is so dangerous that it requires a radical response. 
If you can stop sinning by cutting your hand off, go for it. I don't think you can. But if you struggle with sexual temptation, do whatever it takes to remove yourself from that temptation. I think so often we we act as if we're powerless to do anything about our sin. When if you ask the hard question of what did you try to do? Well, the answer is not much. Take Jesus' words here. If, if you can't read a romance novel without letting your imagination run wild, throw them away. Don't read them. If you can't see a woman in a bikini at the beach without taking a second look, don't go to the beach. If you can't resist the temptation to look at porn on your smartphone, throw away your phone. Get a dumb phone. Honestly, it is better for us to be labelled conservative. It is better for us to be thought of as prudish. It is better for us to be out of touch with our culture because we're not seeing what they're watching on TV. It is better for us to lose everything than to be tempted into sin and lose eternal life. If sin is so bad that a good and just God considers it worthy of eternal punishment in hell. Even as forgiven sinners, especially as forgiven sinners, we should be doing everything we can to flee from sin. It is completely illogical for us to think of sin as something harmless in our life. It's the mole on the shoulder that is guaranteed to kill. And it's not only going to hurt us, it's going to hurt the people around us. And so friends, let me encourage you to take sin seriously today. Don't think quiet anger is harmless. Don't think thoughts in the quietness of your own mind are harmless. Jesus says they're dangerous. And he urges us to get rid of them. And so let me finish with these words from Philippians. Finally, brothers and sisters, the solution, the the way that we'll train our minds to focus on what is good is this. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Let's pray. Now, Lord God, you set a high standard for us. You set perfection as the standard. That is what you want for us. That is what you long for us to be. And Lord, we admit today that we are far from it. Lord, we acknowledge our sin before you today. We acknowledge that we have murdered in our minds. That we have committed adultery in our hearts. That we have treated people that you created, people that you love as objects, as things to be disposed of, as things of little value. And Lord, we repent of that this morning. Lord, help us to crave for righteousness. Help us to take sin seriously. 
Lord, most of all, help us to cling to the one who died so that we could be forgiven for our unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you that Jesus died for our sin. We thank you that Jesus died so that we could be counted righteous because of his righteousness. Lord, we also ask that as forgiven sinners, as those who are unrighteous, who are now counted as righteous, Lord, make us righteous. Work in us by your Holy Spirit so that we may take sin seriously, that we might live truly good lives, not just with our hands, but also with our heads and with our hearts. Lord, grow our righteousness, we pray, for the glory of the one who makes us righteous. In Jesus' name, amen.